A stock is a record-keeping tool for figuring out how much of a corporation each individual investor owns. When you go out and you buy a share of a stock, you are in a very real way becoming a fractional owner of a corporation. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, where today we have on Brian Feraldi, author of Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? But before that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. This weekend, actually, my mom flew into town from Mississippi. So she had been to Austin one time before, but it was actually before me and Leslie moved here. So this is the first time she's been here where we could really show her around as well as first time she got to see the new house. So we took her, did a couple touristy things, a couple of local things that we like to do. So a little boat tour downtown Austin to see the bats fly out. There's like a couple million bats that live under this this one bridge in Austin. And so that was really cool. They actually, you know, I feel like sometimes you go, it's hit or miss, but it, it was a good time. Showed her a lot of local restaurants, went to a few little free events that pop up. You know, I love that. And then we kind of finished the weekend out yesterday at this little tiny place called Little Longhorn Saloon that does this uh, chicken bingo. There's another word in there that I'll, I'll leave out. But basically, the chicken walks around inside of, <laughs> of a cage where the, the bottom of the floor is covered in numbers. And wherever it takes a dump uh, or wherever it poops on that number is who wins. So you buy like tickets to see where this chicken is going to defecate. And uh, in the winter wins like anywhere from 180 to 500 bucks, depending on which level of ticket you bought. So it's hilarious. It's like way more fun than horse racing. How about you, Cody? <laughs> did you win bingo, Justin? Chicken blank win. bingo, I, I'm assuming? I, I, <laughs> yeah, I did not. I did not win. The, the first time I went, I was so close and I'm just like yelling, and you know, like, come on, chicken, come on. But I, <laughs> I did not win. Can't win them all. So this past weekend was mostly a local weekend. I kind of hung around, hung out with some of my hometown friends Friday. We did some bar hopping. Definitely probably had a couple too many drinks. It seems like this is a recurring theme over the past few weeks. I got to get my, get my stuff in familiar. check. <laughs> and then on Saturday night, I actually went out to Boston and got to hang out with a bunch of my college buddies and see people I hadn't seen in a while. It was someone's birthday. And yeah, it was another kind of celebratory day. And then on Sunday, I got to chill out a bit. We went and checked out the Airbnb, which is getting really close. We just had the concrete slab poured and the electric all hooked up for the hot tub in the back. So Ooh. there's a another 50 to $100 per night on Airbnb just with that checkbox checked off. I know for me, when Lauren and I go traveling, that is like a necessity if we're going to like a cabin up in Vermont or New Hampshire. We're always checking, seeing if they have a hot tub it was just an awesome experience. So once that's done, we're just waiting on the HVAC to get finished. And then we're going to do a bit more painting in the back and a couple more decorations, but it should be ready to launch and the next week or two, probably more like two weeks if I'm being realistic. But Justin, I think that's enough about our personal updates. Let's take a quick moment to talk about the awesome spreadsheet freebie that you made. Yeah, Cody, I'm excited to make this available to all the listeners. It's the spreadsheet that I use personally from the time I started in 2015 when I had 38K to track. And now I've got this spreadsheet that shows everything I've spent all the way up to today. We're busted over that million mark. And so it's a tool that I found kind of stood the test of time. It's got all the categories in there for you. And I think it's just a really simple tool that's worked really well for me. And I hope it works well for the listeners. 
All right, Justin, I can't let you get away with not hyping yourself up enough because I've seen this spreadsheet and it is just all encompassing. It tracks all of your expenses. It tracks your net worth month to month. It tracks your income. It has kind of a ledger of all of your different accounts, whether that's bank accounts, 401ks, IRAs, anywhere where your money is sitting, Justin has a place for it. And so basically what Justin did was he took his spreadsheet that he uses himself. He made a template version for all of you guys to use. And he went ahead and recorded a video to show you exactly how he uses it month to month to track his net worth, income, and expenses. You can grab all of that for free at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. All right. So on today's episode, we have on Brian Feraldi, author of Why Does the Stock Market Go Up? And this was a really interesting and fun conversation. As someone who went to school for finance and economics, sometimes I kind of forget that most of the general population, even in the personal finance space, sometimes doesn't get a chance to learn this stuff. Like we talk about what is a stock? Why does the stock market actually go up? A lot of us know that you're investing for the long haul, you know, over 30 years, your money is going to increase. But why does that happen? Like what are the mechanics of the stock market that make that true? We just get to dig into a lot of the nitty gritty, nerdy personal finance stuff that, again, isn't talked about too much in the personal finance space. Yeah, Cody, that was definitely my favorite part of the episode is a little bit of that back to the basics kind of feel. They're back to the basic things that I think a lot of people who are actually probably savvy investors don't think about, whether it be buybacks, stock splits, dividends, that sort of thing. We really walk through the mechanics of why that's happening, how the market will likely react to those actions happening, and just what are the implications when they do these things. So whether you consider yourself really savvy and kind of know but you feel like it's all there is to know about stocks, or maybe it's something that's always been a little intimidating and you wish somebody would kind of break it down for you. We think this is going to be a great episode for you. Or if you have a friend that you think would enjoy this episode, you can find the links to Brian's book as well as share this episode with that friend at thefyshow.com slash Brian. That's thefyshow.com slash B-R-I-A-N. Take it away, Brian. Overall, I was an extremely lucky kid growing up. I grew up in an upper middle class household in uh, the suburbs of Rhode Island. And my parents were naturally good with money. I can tell you that whenever we went on vacation somewhere, my mom was always packing lunches, right? Like the idea of buying food at like an amusement park was so foreign to me. And I remember when we were trying to like buy tickets to a water park, she would organize random strangers in the parking lot to get together so she could buy a group rate and then hand out to everybody. So they were really good at living relatively frugal and saving. They never really had sit down lessons with us where they're like, here's what you do with your money or anything like that. And neither of them, I would say were really sophisticated investors beyond just like their 401k. So it wasn't so much a sit down and here's what you do with your money, but certainly by watching them and knowing that they lived a relatively frugal compared to what they could afford, that certainly rubbed off on me. Plus, I think that just some people are natural savers, like we're just born with like an inclination to to save what we have. And I definitely have that gene. So money wasn't something we talked about a lot uh, growing up, but I definitely had good role models. So as you start to graduate high school, kind of leave the nest, how did those things manifest? You said you also kind of carried those same kind of genes where you just were a natural saver. Yeah. So when I went to, to college, I had the uh, fortunate experience of being flat broke at one point. And I mean like literally zero dollars and there was still a month left 
in the semester. And that was such an awful experience for me. I have to go to my friends and ask them to borrow money to like buy beer on the weekends and stuff. So I've experienced like truly having like zero dollars to your name. But you know, college was a wonderful learning experience. I had a lot of uh, fun there. But again, even in college, I wouldn't say that I learned a lot about money or money management or anything like that. However, when I graduated, my dad did hand me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And this was back in 2004 when that book was all the rage. And again, for whatever reason, I just devoured it. Like I read the entire thing cover to cover in a few days and I went on to binge read essentially everything else that Robert Kiyosaki wrote. Looking back on that today, there's definitely many things in that book I do not agree with. However, it kickstarted a love affair and unlocked a whole bunch of ideas in my head that I never heard before, such as you're in business for yourself, right? Your home is a liability, not an asset. You can become wealthy in one generation. The rich avoid taxes legally and they start businesses. And all those things were like brand new concepts for me. From there, I just read every book that I could get my hands on about money, personal finance, and investing. So it was really my dad handing me that book that kickstarted my love of personal finance. So where does this fall in the timeline? Your dad hands you rich dad, poor dad. And in my research, I know that you did have some financial mishaps, maybe some investing mistakes, maybe some things that didn't go so right for you. So when did those steps happen? Was that after you read rich dad, poor dad, you got really enamored with investing and then maybe Brian went a little off the rails and made some investments that he maybe should have been a bit more careful about? Yeah. If you read rich dad, poor dad, what it basically tells you is lever up, buy real estate, buy gold and silver stocks, right? Buy penny stocks, double your money, take your money out of the market. And while some of that was like, I even knew at the time, I was like, this isn't realistic. One thing that I was interested in was in real estate. So this was like the height, the peak of the housing market, the bubble in like 2004, 2005. And I remember I was like desperate to buy a house because renting was throwing your money away, right? How often do people say that? By the way, now I think that renting is a wonderful deal. And I think a lot of homeowners also feel that way. But yeah, I, I had no idea what I was doing when I first started investing. My first job out of college, I think I earned like $37,000 per year or something like that, which was pretty much living outside Boston, which was pretty much for enough for me to afford rent, to pay my car, food, and not much else. But beyond that, I was pretty good about saving what I could and putting that money into the market. Now, I had no experience with investing at all. I had no idea what index funds were, what mutual funds were, and I was just naturally attracted, like so many people are, towards penny stocks, right? Penny stocks, because if I only have a few hundred dollars to invest, I have to buy a dollar stock because that dollar stock can turn into $2 way faster than a $30 stock can turn into a $60 stock. So I experimented with penny stocks in the beginning. You can imagine how well that went, right? Like essentially everything I bought fell hard immediately. And I was only losing a few hundred dollars at the time, but man, did it hurt. Like it hurt so bad. So that was mistake number one, buying penny stocks. After I learned that lesson, I was like, all right, never doing that again. Let's go to the complete opposite side of the risk profile, or so I thought. I'm only going to buy stocks that have 10 or 20% dividend yields, right? Because all I have to do is buy the stock and then not sell it, and I'll earn a 20% return, right? I'll beat the market with these easy dividend stocks, right? 
Lesson number two is about to be learned. If a company has a dividend yield over five or 10%, it's typically because the business behind that stock is crumbling, right? And that <laughs> dividend is not gonna be paid. So I bought a couple of stocks and that's exactly what happened. Their businesses were crumbling, they cut the dividend. So not only was I not getting my 20% dividend yield, but the share price got cut in half too. So it was like a double whammy financially. Again, I was only losing a few hundred dollars at the time. So it certainly stung, but it wasn't like uh, catastrophic or anything like that. So I've made tons of mistakes uh, like that. All the natural thing that investors do when they're first starting out. But through the school of hard knocks and continually educating myself, I've gradually gotten better. Is that how you would characterize how you got all your education? Just going out there, trying things, making mistakes? Or was there ever a point to where maybe you had a mentor, you had someone who stepped in and taught you some things? Yeah, pivotal change for me on my investing journey came in 2008. That's when I became a member of The Motley Fool. The Motley Fool has several stock picking newsletter services. And the first time I read a recommendation from them, I was like, oh my God, these guys know so much more about investing than I do. And beyond the value of just the recommendations that they make, one thing that I love about being a member of The Fool is once you join, you get access to these discussion boards. And these discussion boards are filled with thousands of investors that have been investing for various periods of time. And everybody shares openly with the, each other research and lessons that they've, that they've learned. And it was really from spending hours upon hours on those discussion boards, just talking with other people that I really learned the ins and outs of accounting and how to invest and how to think about moats. So it was really a combination of my own education, seeking out those mentors on the discussion boards, reading books, and then making mistakes in the market. The combination of those things could kind of help to shape the investor that I am today. So this is going to sound like a very basic question. I know you just mentioned The Motley Fool and they have all these kind of different stock picking silos depending on what you're interested in. Let's go with the question, what is a stock? And just to give people some context, Brian has kind of been in this world since 2008, I think you said, with The Motley Fool. And I think a lot of people in this community are self-taught. And with that, sometimes we just understand kind of the market and generalities. The stock market goes up index funds and you know we'll we can assume this return and that means the four percent rule is safe but a lot of people and i was fortunate enough to go to school for finance and economics but a lot of people don't ever kind of get to learn the basics and so i was really excited about this conversation with you brian again this is a really long preamble and explanation for my question but i was really excited to talk with you to kind of give people like what actually are you investing in like how does this whole economy thing work like what is the stock market so let's just take it from there what is a stock and why do they have value that's a great question, Cody. And it's so common for people to just skip right over that part, right? And one of the disservices that happens today is everyone that has an iPhone, right? Right on the home screen, there's, a, there's an app called Stocks, right? And you click that and what's the thing you see immediately? Prices, right? You see stock prices, but it's very natural for people that know nothing about the stock market to immediately equate investing in stocks to just gambling. Because all they see is a price on a stock ticker going up and down, up and down. And it seems totally random. But to your point, let's, let's back up and say, what the heck is a stock? A stock is a record-keeping tool for figuring out how much of a corporation each individual investor owns. When you go out and you buy a share of a stock, you are in a very real way becoming a fractional owner of a corporation. So if I went on the market and I bought one share of Apple, 
I would now own one, geez, I don't even know the number, 16 billionth or so of Apple or something like that. But in a very real way, I have, by buying that stock, I now have a legal claim on a portion of Apple's assets, so what it owns, and Apple's future profits. That's where stocks derive their value from. When a company behind that stock makes money, that money in a very legal way belongs to the shareholders of the company. So that's, that's where stocks derive their value from. And when you think about why they were invented, it actually makes a lot of sense. So let's say the three of us went into to business together. We're going to start a very simple lemonade stand in our town, but this is going to be a really awesome lemonade stand, right? So we need $100,000 to get the storefront, hire the staff, buy all the supplies, get this business up or off the ground. Justin Moneybags over there has $50,000 to invest in our venture. Cody has $40,000 to invest, and I only have $10,000 to invest. So we pool our money together, and as a way of record keeping how much each of us owns, let's just keep it simple. Let's say we're going to sell stock in our new business to each other, and we're going to price it at $1 uh, per share. So Justin buys 50,000 shares. Cody buys 40,000 shares. I own 10,000 shares. Well, great. Well, fast forward the clock, and let's say our lemonade stand makes $10,000 in profits in that first year. And all of us want to take that money that we made and pay it to ourselves. Well, how much did each of us get? Well, we made $10,000 in profit, and there's 100,000 shares in total. So each share gets 10 cents in a dividend payout. So 10 cents times Justin's 50,000 shares means that he gets a check for $5,000. Cody owns 40,000 shares times 10 cents. He gets a check for $4,000. And I get the remainder, which is $1,000. Now, the math I just said is fairly easy. It's all round numbers. But you can imagine, imagine if we had a dozen investors, a thousand investors, and some people put in $100, and some other people put in a billion dollars to a big corporation it gets complicated quickly. So stocks dramatically simplify that record-keeping process and make it easy to figure out who owns how much. So I love these kind of back to the basic questions that sometimes we just skip over. So with kind of keeping with that theme, you mentioned like, okay, we're going to set the price at a dollar. And I know a lot of times I'm talking to people, even people who actually do invest a good bit, you know, they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this company's $2,000. Apple's only a hundred and something dollars. I'm like, well, that doesn't really matter. Like, you know, that's, it's market cap. So what is it that makes somebody, makes the company set a value, you know, what is it something like a company sets their value to a certain price? Like what goes into that decision-making process? Yeah, that is a very, very confusing thing out there. And only in stocks and stock investing does the price that you, that you pay for one share that's essentially a meaningless number. It tells you nothing about the size of a business. So, but only in investing could one stock be trading at $10, another one could be trading at $1,000, and you say, well, which one's cheap? And the answer is, I don't know, not enough information. So companies choose how many shares they have outstanding. That is a factor that is completely in the company's control. And if a company chooses to have only a couple thousand shares outstanding, or maybe a few million shares outstanding, that can make their share price be $100, $1,000. Even Berkshire Hathaway's A shares, those are $500,000 for the cost of, of one share. Conversely, Berkshire Hathaway, those A shares trading at $100,000, $500,000, Warren Buffett could wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? 
I'm going to increase the number of shares in the Berkshire A shares by a factor of 100,000. If that happened, the number of shares that existed would go up by 100,000, meaning that the share price would go down by 100,000. So the stock would go from $500,000 one day to $5 the next day. However, the overall value of the company wouldn't change. Justin called out the great metric that really investors should pay attention to, and that's market cap. Market cap is the total number of shares outstanding multiplied by the current share price. That gives you a sense of the dollar value of the total equity or the total amount that shareholders own in that company. That's a much more relevant metric for figuring out how big a company is and whether or not it's cheap or not. So you mentioned the example of Warren Buffett just waking up and issuing 100,000 more shares of Berkshire Hathaway. Two other terms is why we have you here that want to kind of dispel all of the rumors around because people get so confused when these things happen. Stock splits and stock buybacks. I feel like when those two things happen, the market just goes crazy and people who you'd think might be sound investors just don't quite understand what's going on. Yeah. Again, again, they're terms that really confuse people. And just a few days ago, Tesla announced that it was going to be splitting its stock and the stock went up like seven or eight percent the next day on that news. So what does a stock split I mean, well, let's go back to our real simple lemonade stand. We decided on day one that we were going to have 100,000 shares outstanding, and each share was going to be priced at $1 per share. Let's say the next day we woke up and said, you know what? Let's do a stock split. We're going to split our stock. We're going to do a 10 for one stock split. All right. So if we do that, the total number of shares that comprise our company would go up by a factor of 10. Instead of there being 100,000 shares in total, there's now going to be a million shares in total. And each share that we own is going to get multiplied by a factor of 10. Justin is now, instead of owning 50,000, is going to own 500,000. Cody's going to own 400,000, and I'm going to own 100,000. Now, the value of our business didn't change. We all put $100,000 into it. So because the stock price, the number of shares was going up by a factor of 10, the price per share would go down by a factor of 10. So instead of trading for a dollar per share, they would trade for 10 cents per share. The exact same principle applies to large companies as well. Tesla stock is currently trading at roughly $1,100, so $1,100 per share. They didn't tell us how much they're going to split their stock, but let's just say it was a factor of 10. So once that happens, instead of the stock trading for $1,100 per share, it's going to trade for $110 per share. But the number of shares is going to go up by a factor of 10. So if you had $1,000 invested in Tesla before the split, you're going to have $1,000 invested after the split. But even though academically it shouldn't make investors excited, a lot of investors do get excited about stock splits because it's much more psychologically easy for them to buy one share when it's $100 than it is when it's $1,000. Not to get too long-winded, but you also act about stock buybacks. Stock buyback is kind of the reverse of that process. This is when a company takes capital that it has and it buys its shares back from the investors and this reduces the total number of shares that are outstanding. Whenever that happens, that means that the existing shareholders own slightly more of the company that they did before. 
Go back to our lemonade example, back to $1 per share, back to $100,000. Cody and I decide that we don't want Justin involved in this business anymore, and we are going to buy him out. And we say, Justin, here is your $50,000. We're going to give this back to you, and we want our shares back in the company. The transaction go through, and instead of there being 100,000 shares in total, now there's only 50,000 shares in total. Cody, you still own 40,000 of the 50,000. So your ownership position in our company went from 40% up to 80%. And that's without you having to do anything. My ownership position went from 10% to 20%. Again, that's without me doing anything. Exact same principle applies to the stock market. Apple is a great example. Each year, Apple buys back a about 4% of its shares outstanding. And that means if you hold it during that time period, you own about 4% more of Apple than you did before. You mentioned like that academically, it shouldn't matter when a company does a split, but the market gets excited anyway. And you mentioned the psychological reason. And I'm just curious, since you've been following this really closely for a while now, you know, you mentioned like 2008, getting into Motley Fool, if that's become more prevalent, because I feel like today, there's more sort of less sophisticated individual stock buyers who have their cell phone apps and they're just out there and they hear about a stock on the news and they look it up. And yeah, like you said, I mean, if it's, you know, 50 bucks, like maybe they can buy it. If it's 1100, I think this caliber of investor probably gets scared away regardless of what any of the metrics say about that actual company. So do you think that that kind of move is going to become more prevalent where you'll see more stocks like an Amazon that's, you know, 3000 plus dollars a share start to try to go to a model to where they're more around that $100 mark. Yeah, with Amazon and uh, those other companies, I do think that over time, several of those companies have traded at 1000 2000 I think Amazon's like $3,000 per share. And given what's happened over the last couple of years, we've seen Apple split their stock, Google split their stock. Some big companies have split their stock. And whenever that happens, their share price goes up the next day. Academically, it shouldn't. Academically, it should be a non-event, but like so many things that are academic about the market, the theory of investing and actually investing are often two completely different things. So I think a lot of companies are going to look at what's happening to Tesla stock, to Amazon stock, to Google stock. They see that those stocks are going to go up and it doesn't really cost a company much to split its stock. There's no reason for it not to split its stock once it gets up to a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars per share. So I would hope that a lot of companies look at that and say, obviously, investors value having share price below $200 or whatever it is. What's the cost to us to doing that? Very, very little. Why not do it? So I am going to just ask you the question on the front of your book, Brian. Why does the stock market go up? With everything we've been saying, You know, it sounds like stocks are a function of how well companies are doing. Obviously, companies go out of business, companies fail, companies tank. Like, There's all these bad things that happen to companies. Why does the stock market continue to climb? Well, I think before you can understand that question, you really have to understand why a company becomes more valuable over time. So let's just start with one of the most successful companies of the last forever, Apple. So if you look at what's happened to Apple stock over the last 20 years, or essentially since it uh, came public, the last 20 years have seen tremendous growth in Apple's stock. If you invested $10,000 in Apple in the year 2000, you'd have almost $2 million today. Now, why did Apple stock go from such a small number to such a huge number today? The answer lies down to Apple itself. 
Back in the year 2000, Apple's revenue that year, the amount of sales that it pulled in, was about $6 billion, somewhere around uh, that number. And Apple turned that $6 billion into about $600 million uh, in net income. $7 billion in revenue, $600 million in net income. Now, over the last 20 years, it's launched the iPhone, it's launched new versions of the iMac, it's launched the iPad, the, uh, the earbuds, right? Apple has just taken off in terms of popularity. And last year, Apple's profits were over $100 billion. $100 billion. So its profits went from $600 million 20 years ago to $100 billion over the last 12 months. That is tremendous growth in revenue and profits over the last 20 years. So Apple, the business, has become far bigger from a revenue and profits perspective than it ever was before. Conversely, what's going to happen to the value of the equity that Apple owns? Well, those shareholders that have owned the company over the last 20 years, at one time, were splitting $600 million now they're splitting a hundred billion dollars, right? So because of that enormous growth in Apple's profits, the value of the underlying stock has gone up tremendously. That's why $10,000 20 years ago is worth $2 million today. The exact same principle applies to the stock market as a whole. What's the S&P 500? It's a collection of 500 of the largest and most profitable businesses uh, in America today. Broadly speaking, the profits of those 500 companies rise each and every year. Now, it doesn't go up in lockstep, right? It broadly follows the, what's happening in the economy. Some years, profits skyrocket. Other years, they tank. But if you look at what's happened to the profits of the S&P 500 companies over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 years, they have consistently gone up over time. Therefore, the value of the underlying index that owns those 500 companies has also gone up over time. So that's the fundamental thing that drives stock market returns over time. It's growth in profits. And it seems like when we're looking at stocks, like an individual stock, like, you know, I get what you're saying with, you know, the total economy, obviously everything gets more expensive. There's going to be higher revenue numbers, like the values are going to go up, like the value of everything goes up. But for an individual company, what are some of the markers? Because it feels very future leaning. It feels very like sentiment focused, not necessarily like, what did you do for me today? What are you going to do for me tomorrow? Especially, I think, in this newer economy where everything is subscription based and it's all about like how many users you have and what's your annual recurring revenue, like those kind of factors. Like, what are some of those that maybe people could look at at a company to say, no, this is an actually legitimate company that's probably going to keep growing or this is just a marketing ploy? Yeah, well, if you're a fan of investing in individual companies like Ida, that's a big part of the challenge that you have to, to go through, right? And an investment in any company requires a leap of faith. The question is, as you as the investor, how big of a jump and leap of faith do you want to make, right? If you go out and you buy shares in Google or Alphabet today, the leap of faith you're making is that people are going to use Google products, they're going to use YouTube, and they're going to use Google Cloud. Is that a leap of faith? 
sure, but with billions of people around the world using them every single day, it doesn't require a gargantuan leap of faith to say, yeah, that's going to continue to happen into the future. Conversely, on the stock market, you can find plenty of companies that have no revenue at all. And all they have is the promise of saying, here's what we hope to do. And here's the way that we're going to generate revenue in the future. In that case, you're taking an enormous leap of faith that as an investor, that company is actually going to be able to execute on its game plan. And between that spectrum of basically people using Google tomorrow and people using a product that doesn't exist, there's plenty of companies that are up and down that spectrum. So it's really about the appetite for the level of risk that you want to take on an investor uh, when you're making any individual investment. But what's actually really wonderful about investing that I've learned a lesson the hard way is that some of the highest return investments that exist are also simultaneously relatively low risk businesses, right? So the businesses themselves are generating revenue, they're generating profit, they have a founder led management team in place, they've already beaten the market. Many of the times they're already names that we know. And the entire thesis for owning them is this great company is going to stay great for a long time. Right? You can actually do really well as an investor by finding companies that have already done great. And the leap of faith you're making is this thing that's working, it's going to keep on working. So that's a large way of the way that I personally invest. I look for companies that are growing rapidly and that are profitable. And a big part of my thesis is this is going to continue. And do you also use the Warren Buffett method of if I don't understand what this company does, that I'm not going to invest in this company? Or do you like to make more speculative bets sometimes? I absolutely love Warren Buffett, but Warren Buffett essentially wants a guaranteed future and he wants to bet on that. And historically, that's worked extremely well. I'm the type of investor that I like to own those companies too, but I'm more willing to go a little bit further out on the, here's what I think is going to happen and bet on, on those companies too. So if you look at my portfolio, it's got a mix of companies in there. It's got Facebook and Amazon and Google, and that is the lion's share of my investments. However, I also like to speculate every now and then. So I have some higher risk companies in there where their future is definitely not cemented in stone. But if I'm right about those businesses, I should do very well. You know, that kind of makes me think about, like you mentioned, like, you know, those are kind of the lion's share of what you own. And But a lot of times in this community, everybody just focuses on the index funds. And we're asking some of those back to the basic type questions. So when I invest in one of those index funds, I invest, you know, $100, $1,000 in there. It's a total stock market fund. What am I really buying? Like, how is my money divvied up? Yeah. So one of the most popular index funds that's out there is VTSAX, I'm pretty sure, is mm-hmm. the uh, the ticker symbol, which is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index. And when you are buying that, you are literally buying, I'm pretty sure, thousands of companies that are out there and your money is being portioned out extremely well diversified into large caps, into mid caps, into small caps, into big companies, into small companies, into highly profitable, into unprofitable. So you are literally just buying everything. And if you're investing, Justin, say $100 per week or whatever into that, that $100 you're investing is getting split up into thousands of smaller investings that are going into all of those individual companies. Now, that, broadly speaking, is a fantastic 
strategy because while you are buying all of the losers, all the, the bad companies, you're also guaranteeing that you're going to get all of the winners in the stock market. And if you look back at the long-term returns of UTSAX or the S&P 500, they usually average out over long periods of time to between 8 and 11% annualized return. And that is a fairly safe bet moving forward that, that that's what the market should deliver. Hence why so many people suggest investing in index funds, myself included, because it's just such an easy way to gain broadband exposure to all the equities that exist in the world. And historically, that's been a very safe bet. But for like that $100, am I getting just as much at the little companies as the big companies? Or like, how is my money getting spread out? So it depends on which type of investment that you're picking. Each fund has its own different style. Broadly speaking, most of them are market capitalization weighed. And that means market cap, again, is the total equity value of a company. So the number of shares times the share price. Right now, I'm pretty sure the largest company, publicly traded company in the world is Apple, tipping the scales at just about $3 trillion in size. And I saw the other day, I'm pretty sure that Apple makes up about 7% of the S&P 500. So of that $100 you're investing, if you did it in the S&P 500, six or $7 is going directly into Apple. Another five is going directly into Microsoft and keeps going down from there based on the, the market cap of the size. Once you get down to the really small companies, I mean, you're putting a fraction of a fraction of a penny into those businesses. So yes, a lot of the index funds that are out there are market capitalization weighed. So the larger the company, the higher proportion of your investment goes into them. So this answer is probably going to be an it depends, but I just want maybe even for your personal situation or what you recommend to people, Brian. So let's say you are planning to buy a house in the next like five to 10 years. I guess the reason why I'm asking that is like, what is the amount of time where you're like, okay, that money should go to be invested in whether it's individual stocks or an index fund, because obviously time in the market beats timing the market. But oftentimes when people ask me for financial advice, there's some extenuating circumstances. Like I'm saving up for a house and I'm, I think I'm going to purchase in the next five years, or I have this big expense coming up. So what's usually the proxy, whether it's for yourself or the people that you advise that you give for like, okay, if you don't need the money for this long, definitely throw it in the stock market. Or maybe it's just all of it. I don't know. I broadly agree with the general market advice that any money that you need in the market fewer than five years should be out of the market. And, and here's why. If you look back at the historic returns of the S&P 500 and you ask a very simple question, what are the odds that I buy this index and then hold it for various periods of time? What are the odds that I'm going to realize a positive real return? Positive real return meaning after accounting for inflation. So if you buy the S&P 500 one day and sell it the next, you make money about 51% of the time. It is literally a coin flip. If you buy it and hold it for a month, you make money about 61% of the time. So much better odds, but still pretty much a coin flip. If you hold the S&P 500 for a year, you've made money 69% of the time. And if you hold it for five years, you make money in real terms 81% of the time. So at the five-year mark, you're much more into the I'm investing category as opposed to the I'm speculating category. That's why so many personal finance people suggest keeping any money that you need out of the market in the next five years out of the market for at least five years. Now, here's the really good news about uh, investing in the, in the S&P 500. 
If your holding period is 10 years or longer, you make money 90% of the time. And if you hold 20 years, there has never been a 20-year period in stock market history when you have lost money. It makes money 100% of the time over 29-year periods. That includes buying at the absolute peak in 1929, and then came the Great Depression, and then came World War II. 20 years later, from 1929 to 1949, you made money. You didn't make a great return, but you made a positive return on your investment. Uh, This is why the stock market is such a great place to put long-term capital. The odds are dramatically on your side that you will earn an inflation-beating return over long periods of time. But over short periods of time, anything can happen. And like you said, anything can happen. And there's going to be a large discussion and and debate on maybe how much your portfolio should just be these large, like the S&P 500s. And how much you can be willing to go out there and buy some of these individual stocks. But if somebody just like wants to scratch that itch and they're doing it responsibly and they want to get into looking at purchasing an individual stock, you know, it can kind of be overwhelming. There's so many to choose from. There's so much information. You can Google any stock and you're going to see multiple headlines, one saying it's going up 40% and one saying it's going out of business in the same thread. So what are some tools that people can use to educate themselves so that They're not just basing their decisions off hype. Maybe they can start to learn things to look at a company and really look at their metrics and look at their actual valuations and what they're bringing to the table to make an informed decision. So if you're going to go from I know nothing to individual stock investing, there's a lot that you need to learn. When people come to me and say, I'm interested in individual stocks, the first thing I tell them was, great, but let's take 90% of your capital and we're just going to put it into plain, boring index funds, right? That way, if you totally screw up that 10% that you have in individual investment stocks, you're going to be fine financially. And this is what I love about investing. So many people, when it comes to the, should I invest in individual stocks or should I just do index funds? It's not an all or nothing decision. There's nothing wrong with doing a tiny little bit into individual stocks and expanding that if you like that as your knowledge about the market improves. But when it comes to learning about how to analyze a business, there's lots of wonderful books out there and investors are super spoiled today because there's podcasts devoted to this. There's YouTube channels that are devoted to this. There's lots of great investment books of the past that are devoted to this. You can type in any stock into the SEC and you can get their annual report, which has financial filings and risks and descriptions of their business. Lots of companies have conference calls that you can listen to to learn about the business and often they have investor presentations that show why you should invest in the company. So I don't have a great answer to where you should start other than to say, are you into books? Start reading books. Are you into podcasts? Start listening to podcasts. Are you into YouTube? Start watching YouTube. But when I'm researching a company, my research always starts at the company itself. Just Google the company name, investor relations, and start reading. So you just mentioned books, and I'd love to ask, you wrote, why does the stock market go up fresh off the press, freshly published? But there are already hundreds, maybe thousands of books on finance, investing, personal finance, all that stuff out there. I guess what kind of gave you the inspiration to write the book and what gap were you hoping to fill in the market? That's an excellent point. There are a dearth of investing books out there, and I would not have written one if I didn't think that there was a void in the marketplace that was looking to fill. I mean, when, when, when people come to me see and I say, I want to learn about investing, what's the first book that comes to mind for you, right? There are so many great books out there about Warren Buffett, about Peter Lynch, Jim Collins' book, uh, The Simple Path to Wealth is excellent, right? There are lots of great books out there that essentially say, 
The smart thing to do with your investing, if you want to keep things simple, is dollar cost average in index funds, end of day, right? And all of them say the market always goes up over time and they show wonderful charts and graphs that convince you of this. I love those books. I think that they're fantastic. But I've always wondered why isn't there a book that explains why the stock market goes up over time. Every book I've ever read has said the market goes up over time. Here's the data to prove it. But I'm, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, why does that happen? Why is there this magical force that causes the S&P 500 to continually go up over time? I understand that it crashes on occasion, but why does it reverse course after a crash? Like in 2008, I don't know if you guys were investing back then, but I remember the headlines were awful. Banks were going out of business. People were losing their houses. The unemployment rate was skyrocketing. The federal deficit was skyrocketing. I mean, it was like the Great Depression Part Two was starting. And I was like, well, capitalism, we had a good run, but uh, it's all over right now. And what happened next? Yes, the stock market, US stock market got hammered, fell, I think, 60% peak to trough. But then miraculously, it recovered. And then the last 10 years have been a phenomenal uh, period to be investing in the market. Why is that? What is the force that caused the market from going from everything is terrible to record highs within a matter of a couple of years? That never made any sense to me. And I've always thought that if there was just one bit of information that I could incept into people's minds, it would be to understand the why behind that happening, right? For years, people would look at the sun and they would know that the sun was going to come up tomorrow, right? Why? You can just call it, the sun will be up in the morning. Why does that happen? For centuries, we had no clue. So we made up all these things about why it was happening. But as soon as somebody explained that the sun is the center of the universe and the earth is spinning around, it's like, oh, that's why it happens. I wanted to provide that same level of light about the stock market. And definitely, you know, don't want to steal the whole book's thunder, but you know, from a high level standpoint, how much would you say is psychological and how much is fundamentals? Like it, because to me, it feels like every time there's been a drop, there's been a touch of fundamentals with a lot of psychology. And every time it's going up, it's probably been a little bit more fundamentals and a little bit of psychology. That's the way it feels to me. Yeah, at any given time, the market is a little bit of fundamentals and a ton of psychology, right? This is why over the short term, stock prices can do crazy things. There can be years in the market where the stock market goes up 30, 40, or 50%. The underlying businesses did not get 30 or 40 or 50% more profitable. Conversely, there are periods when the stock market has declined 30, 40, or 50%. Those same businesses did not lose 30 or 40 or 50% of their profits, broadly speaking. So investing is really the study of finance plus investor psychology. And it's that psychology piece that rules the short term. So if investors are feeling happy, stocks are going up. If investors are feeling scared, stocks are going down. It's just as simple as that. However, over long periods of time, it's the fundamentals that rule the market. And if investors can really grasp that concept and understand the fundamentals, I think they'll invest with a heck of a lot more confidence. So I recently saw someone on Twitter was saying like, basically paraphrasing, but you're an idiot if you don't have at least 25% of your money in international, whether that's index funds or stocks. I'd just love to get your take on that because I'm guessing, you know, most of the questions we we're talking about today, kind of generally talking about the US stock market, but a lot of the same concepts apply. So I guess what's your take on that? Because I was just like, what the heck? That's a, that's a really aggressive take. Like whether it's right or it's wrong, I'd, we have the perfect person here to ask. 
Well, here, here's a question. What is an international stock? Is a company international if its headquarters is in Europe or Latin America? Or is a company international if its customers are in a different country? Take Apple, for example. Apple is headquartered in the United States. Where are its products created? The answer is Asia. Where are its products sold? The answer is all over the world. Only, I don't know the exact number, but it's something like 30 or 40% of Apple's revenue comes from North America. All The vast majority of Apple's revenue comes from outside the US. Is Apple a US company? Yes. But if it gets its revenue elsewhere, I think Apple is an international stock. Uh, the same can be said of tons of other large companies like Nike, for example, McDonald's, for example. So if you're buying into the S&P 500 or VTSAX, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I would guess that 30, 40, maybe even 50% of the revenue is coming from international markets. For that reason, we are super spoiled in the US that we have the largest market and the most diversified market. So I reject the notion that you need to have extra international exposure. Having said that, if you want to, if you want to do that, if you want to put some of your capital into emerging market funds, I see no reason to not do that, but I don't think you need to do it. Well, this has been like just such an awesome conversation, Brian. I mean, we talked about a lot of kind of those back to the basic questions, but you can tell like, you know, you're starting to get into those things that are, you know, to me, at least like a lot more interesting. I think it's all interesting when you're first getting started out, but it's been a great kind of path to take us through from the start to understand what is a stock. And now, you know, I know we're super excited to read why do stocks go up. So could you tell us a little bit about when the book's coming out, what we could expect? Yeah, so the book is going to be published on April 5th, and it's going to be available worldwide, although uh, Amazon is the primary outlet that we're selling it to. So I am super excited to get it out into people's hands and to get some real world feedback on it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I just want to see what people think of it. <laughs> awesome, man. Why does the stock market go up? Well, for those who want to connect further, obviously, first place is the book and our lemonade stand, I guess, number two, come drop by. We get the best glass in town. Is there any place online that you want people to connect with you other than, yeah. you know, reading the book? The easiest place to connect with me is on Twitter. I'm at Brian Feraldi. If you are all interested in individual stock investing, we do that on my YouTube channel, which is Brian Feraldi. We take stocks and we show you step by step how I go about researching them. So if that interests you, check me out over on YouTube. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Cody. Thanks, Justin, for having me. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.